right, Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8, and this chapter is uh, sort of a, an important turning point in the book because up until this point, we've been having the indictment of Israel for all their disobedience. And uh, here we come, I guess you might say, sort of to the sentencing phase of the trial because we have this first verse that uh, gives the warning cry of judgment to come. And then as you go down through this, uh, it gives a sort of bill of particulars, almost like a verdict read in court. And you say that they're found guilty of a series of charges. And we'll go through, there's about four charges specifically. And we've touched on all of them before, but they're set forth in order in this eighth chapter as sort of a documentation of exactly why God is going to bring judgment upon his people. And after that, when we get into the ninth chapter, he's going to explain exactly what that judgment is going to be like. But uh, the eighth chapter starts out in a very dramatic way. It says, Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. So there's this, uh, this warning of a judgment to come. And we've been building up to this slowly all the way through the last several weeks with uh, all the, uh, remember in the beginning of this book we had the story of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer was the unfaithful wife, represented the unfaithfulness of Israel. And we looked at that in the first three chapters, and then in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, God's been laying out all the particulars of what it is that Israel has done to disobey Him. And um, like we've said over and over, this is, this is pretty important material for us to see today because there are so many parallels between what Israel did and what our nation is doing today. And it ought to serve as a wake-up call. Now, I don't think too many people are awakened by it because, uh, well, not too many people read the book of Hosea, do they? Or any other part of the Bible. But that's what this uh, beginning of this eighth chapter is. Set thy trumpet to thy mouth. That's, that's setting off the alarm, isn't it? Pay attention. And I want to spend some time especially with this first verse tonight, sort of unpacking what it's talking about, because there are pictures given here uh, that maybe would have meant more to somebody who was uh, an ancient Israelite than they do to us today. To tell somebody to set the trumpet to thy mouth at this juncture in time would have, uh, would have been a powerful and kind of a, a heartbreaking thing, really. Uh, because... Israel has quite a history with trumpets. And if you've studied the Scripture, you find that the trumpets are a very important thing. Uh, the first time in the Scripture that you hear anything about a trumpet sounding, it is at Mount Sinai. And uh, you remember probably the, the story there. They're all gathered at the base of the mountain, and the mountain's on fire and smoking, you know, and, and there's all these rumblings and everything. But in the midst of all that, there is the sounding of a trumpet. And that is actually very important. I think I've mentioned this here before. I, that, I think, is the context of what the Bible talks about uh, at the time of the rapture, about the last trump. In the Jewish tradition or understanding, uh, they thought of their, the, the significance of these two trumpets, one that blew up Mount Sinai as the making of the covenant, and uh, as, as God was making His covenant with His people, and was the thing that was given as His calling out of them from Egypt to the promised land. Uh, 
And then there was the idea that there would be a second Trump or a last Trump that would be the thing that recalls them to the land. And that, of course, gets all mixed in with the uh, the rapture of the church because it's at the time God calls the church out that he starts to turn his attention to Israel again and call them back to the land. And I think that's probably the best way to understand that last Trump, that at that moment God is calling his church out for the purpose of then turning his attention back to his chosen people of Israel. And I, that's important to understand, by the way, because there's a lot of confusion about that last Trump that leads people into uh, mid-tribute rapture <laughs> theories and all that sort of thing. But the trumpet was an important thing. It was God calling out his people there at Mount Sinai to make his covenant. Now, that is significant because the rest of the verse, it talks about the problem is that they have transgressed the covenant, trespassed the law. Right? They heard a trumpet there at Mount Sinai when God makes the covenant. Now they've broken the covenant, and they're going to hear the trumpet again. And uh, I want you to think about the whole, the whole history of how trumpets are used in the Old Testament. When the people are out there in the wilderness, the trumpet was used as a signal of when they were supposed to move. And in Numbers chapter uh, 10, it, uh, I think it's where it is. I'm not going to turn back there right now and look at it. But there is a... Uh, there's a set of instructions about how the people were supposed to move with regard to the trumpet sounding. And there were different ways of sounding the trumpet. Sometimes you would sound a trumpet just to call the people together. And then other times you would sound a trumpet that was an alarm uh, to indicate that the people were about to move. And then you would have trumpets uh, sometimes used in battle. The trumpet was used as a means of communication. Uh, it was used at the Battle of Jericho, if you remember, when they'd walked around the city, uh, done a lap every day for six days, and then on the seventh day they went around seven times. And what did they do? They shouted and blew trumpets, and the walls fall down. There was a feast of trumpets that God had given His people, and it was the, uh, the, the first day of the seventh month. And we've talked some about this before. There were seven feasts, and they were sort of grouped into two groups. The first four came in the spring of the year, and the last three came in the fall. And the Feast of Trumpets kicked off that second uh, series, the fall series of feasts. And it's that that prophetically pictures the regathering of Israel, by the way. That Feast of Trumpets is a picture of the rapture. I think I've talked some about this before, that when you look at how those feasts lay out, uh, the first feast was Passover followed by unleavened bread, and that of course pictured the death of Christ. Then you had the Feast of First Fruits on the following Sunday after that, which pictured his resurrection. Christ literally was crucified on Passover and literally raised again on the resurrection. And then 50 days after that, you had the Feast of Pentecost, which celebrated the bringing in of the harvest. And uh, that was, of course, when the, the church was brought in, was on the day of Pentecost. And I, I don't think it's a crazy thing, actually, to think that the rapture might occur on the day of the Feast of Trumpets. Now, I know we say no man knoweth the day or the hour, the, and I don't think we do it. To, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if we have the Jewish calendar down exactly now these days precisely as to what God intended to start with. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the rapture actually occurs on the day of the Feast of Trumpets. And that will be a time for Israel to begin to be regathered. There were trumpets used for all sorts of things. Um, remember Gideon. Remember what he armed his, his little army of 300 men with? They had uh, pitchers and 
lanterns or lamps and uh, trumpets to sound there in battle. And there are lots of times in the history of Israel where somebody would blow a trumpet to gather the people together to battle. So in the mind of somebody from Israel, a trumpet would have represented uh, a a few different things. It might represent a, a, a joyous time when all the people are being gathered down to the the tabernacle or the temple to worship. It might represent a time when God is delivering His people. That's generally what trumpets had been when they blew the trumpet trumpet and gathered the people together to war. That was a picture of deliverance from God. And that's pretty much what it had always been. It was used sometimes in the worship at the tabernacle. There were uh, some of the Psalms talk about using a trumpet in the worship down there. And as far as I can tell, this is the first time in the Bible where the trumpet sounds and it's not God delivering the people or coming to the aid of the people of Israel, but He's sending judgment on them. And you can imagine that would have been probably a a pretty powerful thing to grasp the imagination of a Jewish person at that time, wouldn't you think? Because the, the trumpet always represents God on our side, you know, and the power of God gathering us together or leading us or delivering us and so on. And now they have gone so far from God. Remember back at the beginning of this book, we saw that uh, Gomer had those three children, Jezreel and Loruhamah and Loami. And that name Loami meant not my people. And so what he's communicating to them now is, we're blowing the trumpets this time, but I'm not coming to your aid. This time when you hear the trumpet, it's not deliverance or joy. This time judgment is coming because you're not my people anymore. Now, let me reiterate again that this doesn't mean he's cast them away forever. There is coming a time of deliverance. But at this moment, he says the trumpet is the warning that Not that the army of Israel is coming. It's not going to strike fear in the heart of your enemies. The warning this time is that the Assyrian army is coming to you. They're blowing the trumpet on their behalf, not on yours. And you can blow your trumpets all you want to, but there's no deliverance coming this time. Well, that's a very fearful thing, isn't it? To think about you've come to the point where God won't deliver anymore. And again, I think that's something that ought to... uh, Ought to sober up our hearts as, as Americans today. You wonder how far this country has to go before God won't come to our aid anymore. You understand there were still people in Israel who were godly people, just like there are still people in America that are godly people. But the nation as a whole had turned so far from God that He wasn't going to deliver them anymore. The time had run out. God had over had watched over this nation for hundreds of years, there, there was no reason why this little nation of Israel should have been able to exist where they were with no more strength than they had, except that God was watching over them. And he says, I'm not going to do it anymore. And he says, he shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord. Uh, he being uh, the Assyrians or the king of Assyria. And he says, he's going to come as an eagle against the house of the Lord. And that picture of an eagle is kind of an interesting picture there. Uh, first of all, the most obvious or surface meaning of it, I guess, is this, that out of all the birds, uh, there is hardly any to be found that could excel the eagle in terms of swiftness and power combined. 
uh, an eagle, when an eagle comes down uh, to catch its prey, most of the time it comes so fast that the prey doesn't even see it coming. It's almost without warning. And the fact is, and I hope you understand this, just because God sent a prophet named Hosea to give this warning doesn't mean that most of the people of Israel ever paid any attention to it. That's kind of a sad thing to think about, isn't it? You know, we may know more about the book of Hosea than the average person in Israel did at that time because most people ignored the message from God, just like they do today. And so he says this he's going to come as an eagle. There's going to be this incredible swiftness, strength. There's no overcoming it. Uh, for the most part, when an eagle attacks its prey, that prey has no chance in the world, does it? <laughs> because the eagle soars in from above and grasps it with its talons, and the animal that is under attack usually has no idea even what has happened to it probably until it's all over. And eagles, there are some eagles that are capable of uh, taking down very powerful prey. Uh, There have been cases documented where eagles have killed animals that were so large that the eagle couldn't fly away with them. They had to eat them where they were. Uh, There was, I think the the largest I ever, I I looked this up, the largest animal that any eagle had ever killed weighed over 80 pounds. (laughs) And it managed to kill that animal and uh, had to consume it where it was because it couldn't carry it away. Yeah. And some of them were like seven or eight feet across. Right. They, just they are they're massive birds. Massive and uh, eagles eagles are the uh, uh, the largest uh, I think about the se- second or third largest bird of prey in the world. I mean, there's all there's all sorts of different varieties of eagles, but yeah. but uh, the largest eagles I think uh, is a condor and maybe something else that are larger yeah, birds of prey. It, it depends on the eagle, but there are, there are some of them that can get up something like eight feet, I think, something like that. Yeah, They're very large. You don't realize how big they are. I mean, a bald eagle is probably as tall as Diana. Yeah. And, uh, and they're very fast, very powerful birds. And so he says that's, that's the sort of attack that's going to come down on you. Now, the, uh, there, there's probably a little symbolism here that goes beyond just the bird, though, because... There was, uh, there was a god that the Assyrians had, or a sort of an image they had, that was a, a, a figure of a body of a man with a head of an eagle on it. And it's a little bit mysterious because it seems to have only been found in one place, and there's some controversy about exactly what it was or what it meant. Uh, but it does seem to have represented an Assyrian idea of protection from their gods. And as a matter of fact, one of the names they used for it was Kurub, which would have been in uh, the Assyrian language sort of uh, an equivalent to the Hebrew word cherub or cherub. So if you remember when we talked about angels a while back, the cherub in the Bible was something that sort of represented uh, a guardian of the holiness of God. Remember, he put cherubs on the uh, mercy seat and cherubs on the veil. There was a cherub stationed outside the Garden of Eden so that nobody could come in. And so that was what that was supposed to represent. Now, you can imagine this sort of eagle man figure as an Assyrian rival to God's cherubs. And if you understand the nature of 
ancient warfare in the Middle East and a lot of other places as well, they regarded their warfare very often as a rivalry between their gods. It was who had the strongest gods would uh, would bring deliverance. And so if you think about it that way, probably the use of it, the, the picture of an eagle that God makes here has a lot to do with God saying, I've withdrawn my protection. The, the cherub was a thing that was supposed to serve as protection. Notice what he says, he shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord. Now, they didn't actually, the Assyrians didn't make it to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, but the house of the Lord was the place where they had cherubs mounted all over the place. And uh, given that the, uh, the northern kingdom had set up these counterfeit centers of worship that were to some extent modeled after the ones in the south, it's probably reasonable to think that some of them had cherubim in them. And so what God says to them is, I'm going to let, <laughs> I'm going to uh, allow their eagle to come down and <laughs> overrun your cherub because what you need to understand is it wasn't the image of a cherub that protected you, it was me. And your images won't do anything in the world. Your idols was what they had become. They had turned this thing that was from God into an idol. And he says, that won't protect you. I'm going to let the Assyrians have their way. Uh, one, of the, one of the possibilities that suggested, and some people dispute this or argue against this, was that that eagle figure was, uh, was called Nisroch. And there is a mention of Nisroch in the Bible. And uh, interestingly enough, if you remember the Bible story of Hezekiah, after the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom, they went on further south and tried to defeat Hezekiah. And they besieged the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. There's that famous story about how Hezekiah went down to the temple to pray. God sent deliverance. He killed the entire Assyrian army, 185,000 men. He didn't kill the Assyrian king. The king was a man named Sennacherib at the time. And Sennacherib went back home to uh, Nineveh without his army. And the, the fate of Sennacherib was, a, was a, a tragic or a bitter one, I guess. He went down to the house of his God, and his own sons killed him in the house of his God. Well, the house of his God was Nisroch. That was the God he was worshiping. So uh, we're not entirely sure whether that was the same thing as this eagle God or not, but it is kind of an interesting thing to think about, isn't it, that God would be showing his sovereignty in the matter, that that he said he would allow the eagle to come down and, and bring judgment on his people. But when Sennacherib went back to his own temple and looked for protection from his eagle god, there was no protection from him because it still wasn't godly. Now, the, uh, the eagle, the, the reference to the eagle here is a, is a thing that in itself is a little bit disputed because there's a good bit of discussion about exactly what is meant in the Bible by the word eagle. And uh, there are people who think this refers more to something like a vulture. And here it's worth pointing out, and some people get very confused about this sort of thing, but you have to understand that in Bible times they didn't have the same kind of <laughs> biology textbooks we have to do now and taxonomic classifications to separate one animal from another. There's all sorts of discussion and debate about how the Bible must contradict itself because Jonah says, the book of Jonah says he was swallowed by a fish and Jesus said a whale. And people debate about that, and they forget that at the time the Bible was written, nobody really made a distinction between a whale and a fish. They called a whale a fish. They didn't, they didn't say anything different back then. So uh, 
in those days, large birds would sometimes just be classified together. Now, if it is, if it is a vulture, that is an interesting image in itself, isn't it? Because what does a vulture come after? It comes after something that's already dead. And perhaps that's what he's saying to Israel is that you're, you're already dead spiritually. And that's why the vulture can come on you. Now, if it is an eagle in the sense that we think of an eagle, there's another sort of an interesting aspect to that because the eagle is distinctive among birds of prey for one peculiar habit that it has. And that is that as it's killing or taking its prey or immediately after, the eagle has a strange habit of looking over its shoulder to make sure there's nothing behind it. And other birds of prey don't do that. But the eagle does, <laughs> because apparently the eagle has some sort of sense that somebody else might be trying to steal the prey that it's just captured. And when you think about that in the context of what we know about the history of empires in the Bible, that is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because uh, we have you know the Egyptian empire that gets overrun. We have the Assyrians, who we know now, within a little over 100 years after this time, are going to be overrun by the Babylonians. The Babylonians then by the Medes and Persians, and the Medes and Persians by the Greeks, and the Greeks by the Romans, and so on. But it is an interesting picture there for the Assyrians, isn't it, that the eagle is the bird that turns and looks back over its shoulder to see what might be coming after it. Well, the Babylonians are coming after you in a little while. And there is kind of an image there that even though they are permitted to bring judgment upon God's people, God is not going to leave them alone. And that judgment will come on them in their turn. Well, he says that the reason he's going to allow this eagle to come against the house of the Lord and the reason to sound the alarm, sentence has been made, judgment is coming. And in this book, like I said, we're going to give about four things in particular. And the first one is this. At the end of verse 1, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Now, we've talked about that quite a lot already um, as we've studied through this book. But that's the core of what this book is all about. The, uh, the image that we start the book with of Gomer as the unfaithful wife of Hosea is a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God because just like marriage is a covenant that's made between a man and a woman, God had made a covenant with His people. And they hadn't kept up their end of the bargain. They made wedding vows out there at Mount Sinai, if you want to put it that way. And they promised God that they would keep all His law. Uh, they stood before Him there on the plain there out there by Mount Sinai and swore that they would keep God's law. And they didn't even come close to keeping God's law. They didn't even keep the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And uh, they had violated this in every possible way you could imagine. And so God says, the first thing I've got against you is, we made a covenant. And I kept up my end of the deal. As a matter of fact, he'd gone far beyond that, hadn't he? God had not only kept up his end of the deal of the covenant, he'd shown a lot of grace besides. If he had held strictly to the letter of the covenant, he would have had the right to bring this judgment upon them Long, long ago. Because the truth is, they never had kept the covenant very well. The same sin, we see this in just a little bit, this calf that they have in the northern kingdom, Aaron made one of those <laughs> within 
just a very brief period of time, you know, within a matter of weeks after they had uh, first received the covenant. So he says, you're disobedient. You've trespassed against my law. And I think we've talked about that word trespass before. It means to overstep a boundary, to walk over the property line, you know. And God says, I set bounds upon you, and you didn't pay any attention to the bounds I set. You just went where you wanted to go. And uh, that, I think, is a pretty important image here because what is this northern kingdom of Israel? It's, it's this people who are set on this land that God had given them as part of His covenant with them, and He promised them these lots of land on this ground. But what had they done? They had removed themselves from the, from the duly constituted rule that God had set upon them in that land. And that's what we come to uh, here down in verse 4 in just a little bit. But before we get there, look at verse 2. It says, Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Now, this is, uh, I think, a very important verse in this book. And it connects to something that Jesus very famously said in Matthew chapter 7, and we'll look at that just in a minute. But here what we find are people who are so deceived that they don't even know how wrong they are. I preached a message Sunday. Um, it, it originally I'd started out to make a Sunday school lesson out of it. I ended up preaching on it instead. But about the, the poison the devil has that he's inflicted the world with. And one of the, the devil's poison is a lie, right? That's what he started out. That's, that's how he led the human race astray to start with is a lie. And one of the reasons that poison is so deadly is that a person who has believed a lie doesn't even know he's been poisoned. If you get by, bit by a rattlesnake, you know you've been bit, right? <laughs> Nobody ever gets bit by a snake and says, oh, I don't think I got bit. You know it because it hurts. But when you have a lie, sometimes it doesn't even register that you've been lied to if you believe a lie. And so this northern kingdom, now understand, probably the vast majority of people in this northern kingdom have never actually seen or read a copy of the Word of God. They have been led astray by those kings and priests that have been there in the northern kingdom who have told them the wrong thing. And they honestly believe, some of them probably, that they're serving God. And they, and they say, my God, we know thee. <laughs> Why are you bringing this on us? We know thee. We, we, we've got this covenant. We know thee. And you think about, again, that name, Lo-Ami, not my people. He disowned them. He says, I don't know you. And uh, I want to look at that passage there in the book of Matthew. Uh, it's Matthew chapter 7, verse, verses 21, 22, 23. It's right after he's given the warning about false prophets that would come in sheep's clothing, you know, but they're ravening wolves. And uh, he says, by their fruits ye shall know them in verse 20. And he says in verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And I think that's a very important passage of Scripture. 
Because what it tells us is that it is entirely possible for a person to believe they know God, but God doesn't know them. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that is absolutely the truth. We've got a lot of people who are preaching false gospels. And uh, here's one of those places where I'll, I'll get up on my soapbox again for a little bit, right? And, and start talking about those things. The, uh, uh, this is one of those things I'm going to talk about things that will make people mad at me. <laughs> but here we go anyway. It is so important that we preach the gospel accurately, that we preach the Bible accurately, that we get to what the Word actually says. And there are people who, uh, honest to goodness, we've got people in this world today that if you do that, they'll say, well, you've just got a head knowledge of the Bible, and you don't have it in your heart. Well, that's not necessarily true, is it? As a matter of fact, I wonder how if somebody could say they really love God in their heart and they don't want to know exactly what the Bible says about Him. That seems strange to me. But what we've got in this world today is uh, a, a religious world that wants to walk by sight and not by faith. They want to see something. So we need somebody to... <laughs> recite the prayer we give them or shake our hand or something like that so that we can feel like we've made a convert. And I'm afraid sometimes what we've done is produce a false profession and we're going to have people that are going to be caught up one of these days and the Lord say, I never knew you. Because they never really were moved by the Holy Spirit. They never really were convicted, never drawn to God. And they never ultimately trusted Him with all their heart. They believe something about God. They believe there is a God. Maybe they even believe God has blessed them. Now, one of the things that uh, a lot of people seem to think about this passage where it says that they never knew me, it says that's going to be people who just had a, a sort of a superficial profession, but they, they didn't really have any power. Well, it looks like these false prophets actually had quite a lot of power of some sort, <laughs> right? Because they said they did many wonderful works. And they prophesied, and they cast out devils. And it doesn't appear that they're lying about this. Now, let me say this. I've got a feeling that when Jesus appears in His glory, there won't be much dishonesty on that day. <laughs> right? Because when you see Him as He really is, it'll be hard to lie. And I think these people are going to sincerely believe that they actually have done all these things in Jesus' name. And they've been so deceived. Now, how, come, how are they able to believe this? Well, uh, for one thing, the devil can produce false signs and lying wonders. And for another thing, sometimes you can talk yourself into believing something that you saw was you know, a wonder when it wasn't really that. But I want to say this, and I don't, think, I don't think we can emphasize this enough. Whether or not somebody knew God or knew Christ cannot be evidenced by any work that is done. It's evidenced by obedience to the will of His Father. That's what He said there. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, first and foremost, the will of the Father which is in heaven is that you believe on Christ, right? And that's what, that's what uh, 
makes it possible for the Father to show you the grace to save your soul. But it's obedience. Obedience is the real sign. It's not that you, uh, again, this is one of those things that will probably make a lot of people mad, but we seem to be in these days always chasing a manifestation of something that will prove to us the truth of the Bible or that what we're doing is right to validate what we're doing. And that's exactly the kind of person that can be deceived because if it's a visual manifestation that you need, you're walking by sight and not by faith. Probably, I think that some of the some of the people in heaven who will receive the greatest rewards are the ones who walked faithfully in obedience to God all their lives, even though they didn't see much manifestation of anything. Because that takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? And we have some people in the Bible who did that. We have some of these Old Testament prophets that we're studying about. Nobody loved them, right? And they didn't get a lot of converts, but they were obedient. Yeah, old Jeremiah was thrown in a sister. Uh, I think I preached here before about that prophet Micaiah. That mm-hmm. remember him? He was the one that uh, when Jehoshaphat made his league with Ahab, and he asked if there was a prophet of the Lord that would speak to him and speak the truth. And, and Ahab said, "There's one, but I hate him." And uh, you know, uh, Ahab uh, after he prophesied that Ahab had him locked up and said he'd release him when he returned, and Ahab got killed in that battle. He never returned. And so as far as I know, Micaiah probably died in prison uh, for, his, for his honesty, for his faith. Well, that's obedience to the will of the Father that's in heaven, isn't it? And that's how you know you know him. Now, the reason I say that, and I'm not trying to be, sometimes I almost feel bad about saying these things because somebody will say, well, you're, you're just you know, trying to prove that you're right and they're wrong. It's a, it's a serious thing because we've got so many people today that are chasing after uh, let me let me say it this way. One of the things that, that troubles me a little bit about the kind of religion that's all around us now is we see a lot more people looking for power from God than we do looking for holiness. Now, we ought to have the power of God. If you're obedient to Him, He'll put His power in you. But if you want power without holiness, we talked about it last week, didn't we, about that, uh, that uh, cake or the, the oven that was heated up and the, and the cake was just allowed to sit there and leaven to form in it. You have fire, but you have no purity. And to have the fire without holiness, you're running the very real risk that you'll be the kind of person that God comes and says, I never knew you. If it's not His holiness you want. And so we've got a lot of this sort of doctrine going around in the world today about... Uh, that that almost ignores really the core of the Bible that what it's all about is that we are sinners and that Christ has come to die for our sins and that we must believe on Him or we have no hope. And uh, you can work around that with all sorts of religion and all sorts of stuff that makes a lot of noise and and gets people excited, but if that's not the core of it, then you've missed the point. And uh, that seems to have been what had happened there in, in Israel in uh, Hosea's day. They have all sorts of people who are worshiping God, and they're very enthusiastic about it. I mean, I think we had a lot of people who were very devoted to religion in that day. But they didn't do it God's way. They didn't look in the book to find out how God said He would send mercy to the people. He had designed in that day, only one path. And that was, there was a temple down there in Jerusalem where he had said his name. 
and he set an altar down there and a mercy seat and an ark, and he put priests down there, and you had to make sacrifices to receive grace. And if you tried to do it another way, if you tried to do an end run around that and find your own direction, you might think you know him, but he doesn't know you. And that's just the way it is today. There is one way to salvation. There's only one way to have a saving knowledge of God, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Him. And if you try to do it any other way, if you try to mix in your own works or anything else like that, you're going to think you know Him, but He doesn't know you. And that's very serious business. I mean, that's something we need to make clear, I think, uh, and keep beating that drum, even if it (laughs) irritates people sometimes when you do, because it's important. It really matters. It says in verse 3, Israel hath cast off the thing that is good, the enemy shall pursue him. And in verse 4, he gives the second of his charges. Remember the first one was, they transgressed against my covenant, trespassed against my law. The second one is this, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Uh there's actually the second and third ones in that verse. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, that, but I knew it not. Now, this is probably all we'll get to here tonight. We probably won't even get to the second half of that verse where it talks about the third charge, which is their idolatry. It has to do with God's ideas about government. And God's idea about government is that God is supposed to be in charge of government. Where God is not in charge, the government will not function in a way that pleases God. In Israel, God had at one point allowed them to have a king. It wasn't actually his desire, if you remember. When, they first, when he first put them in the land, he gave them judges uh, periodically when they needed deliverance. But they went over 400 years without a king after they got into the promised land. And uh, they wanted the king to be like the other nations. We looked at this story a little while back. God finally agrees. He chooses Saul to be the first king. Samuel, who was the last of the judges, remember he, he told Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. And uh, he does allow a king. Now, that is a legitimate kingdom. And of course, Saul, you may remember, lost the kingdom because of his disobedience. His family didn't get to rule on the throne, but God then set up David as the king and made David a promise that his house would be the king's forever. And of course, the final fulfillment of that is in Christ. And that's a legitimate kingdom. <laughs> Whatever God's reluctance may have been to give them a kingdom to start with, that certainly is a legitimate kingdom. God ordained it. God commanded Uh, David to be anointed, and kings after him were anointed. But you may remember, I've mentioned this briefly here several weeks ago, I think probably in our second lesson on Hosea, that none of the kings of the northern kingdom were ever commanded to be anointed by God except for one man, and that was Jehu. Uh, He was the only one who was ever anointed by God to be king, or was ever ordered to be anointed. And the reason was because God had set him apart to destroy Baal worship in the kingdom. The house of Ahab had reintroduced Baal worship, which apparently had been wiped out in the kingdom for quite some time. And so Jehu was sent down there to do that. But other than that, all those kings in the north were never ordained by God to do anything. And as we said before, 
Jehu didn't do it right. <laughs> he ended up, he ended up uh, killing the king, uh, the rightful son of David, who was the king in the south in Judah, and, uh, and was punished for that. But the, uh, the northern kings never were ordained by God. God never endorsed their rule. They were always rebels from the very beginning. God had sent the line of David to rule the kingdom. And when Jeroboam rebelled against that, uh, he was successful. <laughs> the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, became for a time more powerful than the southern kingdom of Judah. But there again we have the evidence that just because you have some success in this world doesn't mean you're right with God. He hadn't done it the right way. They made up their kingdom. They chose kings that they wanted. And as we've talked about several times before, uh, they had all sorts of revolutions and coups and warring and fighting. The, in the south you had a, a consistent line of kings. It was always in the house of David uh, all the way down until they were uh, overrun by the Babylonians. Uh, for It lasted uh, over 300 years that they had a, a single family ruling in the south, which is a, a pretty long dynasty, frankly, in the history of the world. But in the north they didn't have that. There are all sorts of ruling families and, and there are wars and one family conquers another family. There are kings who are only kings for a few days and somebody kills them and so on and so on. And so they keep setting up all these kings. The people would get mad with one king and they'd root him out and set up another one. And God says, I didn't have anything to do with any of that. You were doing it on your own. And uh, that means it's ungodly. Now, again, that's something that ought to scare us a little bit in America today, don't you think? <laughs> we set up our kings, and we don't call them kings today. We set up our rulers, and we set up our leaders, and we set up our government. But how often do people really ask God who He wants in that office? We keep setting them up, don't we? <laughs> you know we complain all the time about the government, but we put them in there, didn't we? <laughs> That's who we voted for. It Honestly, it bothers me a lot of times to look at the ballot and think, why in the world can't we find anybody <laughs> better than this to vote for? You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, on, on either side. And it seems like that we've set up all sorts of people that are very wicked people. Now, uh, the truth is that the best way to rule a kingdom in this world or a nation, would be to let God rule it. But we can't do that these days, can we? Because the people are too rebellious. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that we should institute a theocracy. Not because it wouldn't be good to have a theocracy. One of these days when we actually have a good government in this world, it'll be a theocracy. <laughs> it'll be Christ ruling. The trouble is that men are so wicked that if you tried to set up a religious rule in this world... It wouldn't straighten out the state. It would just corrupt the religion. That's all it would do. That's all it ever does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you think about it. I heard somebody say uh, a while back, and they were sincere and well-meaning, they said they ought to make it a law that everybody has to go to Sunday school and go to church. And I said, no, I don't think that would be a good idea at all. You know why? Because as soon as you make it a law to go to Sunday school and, and to go to church, you've got somebody competing to say, my church. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've lost all your freedom before God, haven't you? And next thing you know, 
there's all sorts of financial incentive to get everybody forced to go to your church and not somebody else's church. And before you know it, the, cor- the church is just as corrupt as the government is. Well, human nature is just a sad, tragic thing. <laughs> That's how we are. And we can't seem to fix it. One day the Lord will have to come back and fix it. But the truth is, uh, this is why government has always been so very messed up all down through the ages. Because the trouble with government is not which government system you have. The trouble with government always is the sin nature. That's the problem at the heart of it. In America, we tend not to like monarchies very much at all, and we're very strong in our opinions about democracy. But the truth is, the only thing that's wrong with monarchy is the monarchs. (laughs) If you had a good king, a monarchy would be just fine, wouldn't it? The trouble is that nine out of ten kings are going to be wicked. That's always been the problem, hasn't it? And the recent democracy, uh, kind of (laughs) as much trouble as we have with it, we... Most of us wouldn't want to trade it for a king. And the reason is, I think, not because that we're all so brilliant or so smart that we can pick our own leaders and do well with it. It's just better to spread out the power (laughs) because we're all so wicked. And uh, frankly, I don't see a lot of hope for this country to change our pattern for the better unless people would turn to God. You have in the southern kingdom, sometimes you had some good kings, right? Most of them were bad, but you had some good ones. You have a man like Manasseh, who is a wicked king, a terribly wicked king. But after him, there's a Josiah. And Josiah turns the people back to God. And that's the fearful thing I think we've got in our country now, is we've had plenty of Manassehs, haven't we? I mean, you think about who, I'm not, I'm not commenting on even one political part or the other, but just look back over, for decades now, we've had a lot of Manassas, wicked people who led the country in the wrong direction. We've got a pretty heavy history of presidents who had very little moral character of their own. And it's very difficult for anybody to lead the people into a higher moral character if you have none of your own. So we've had plenty of Manassas, but I don't see any Josiahs coming along, do you? Do you see anybody on the political horizon who might turn the people back to God and holiness and righteousness? I mean, either party or any party or (laughs) anywhere you can look. See, we're a long way down the road, aren't we? We've set up our kings. And we've made our princes. But we haven't asked God about it. And he says, because of this, the judgment is coming upon Israel sometime. Not very far off. Well, I think we'll stop there for tonight. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start to get into um, the other reasons why God is sending judgment. At the end of verse 4, we saw one of them already, is because they have made idols. And we're going to talk about those idols some. And as we get into the later part of the chapter, in verse 9, down through there, it's going to talk about how they've turned to other nations for their help instead of turning to God. And that'll sort of finish out the bill of particulars that God has set against his people.